0: And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Production Bunker, it's Derek Duvall!
1: Hello, Duvall Nation. Hello! Hey, everybody. Hi. Thank you so much. Please sit. Thank you. Hello, Duvall Nation, and welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. We are back with another fantastic journey into the lives of extraordinary people. This episode is brought to you today by the fine folks at BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy service, and it's 100 percent online. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Derek Show. That's better. Hglp.com slash Derek DeVall Show. So before we jump into this episode, I want to say a big thank you to my last guest, Emma G. What a fantastic lady and what a great guest. She is doing a lot of great work in this world. And if you have not heard our in depth interview, I strongly advise you to check it out after the conclusion of this episode. So, welcome to episode 195. And we have a great episode lineup for you today. We have on the show Andrew D. Bernstein. Andrew is a legend in the sports photography industry, having been the gold standard for shooting NBA superstars Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, the Dream Team, and hundreds more. He is a team photographer for the Los Angeles Kings and has been for over four decades. We discuss his meteoric rise as a photographer, his success working in the NBA, his time with the Dream Team, collaborating with Kobe Bryant on his book, The Mama Mentality, How I Play, his new media platform he co-founded called Legends of Sport, and so much more. This was such a great conversation, and you can tell Andrew is such a pleasure to talk to. So lots to get into. Let's get Andrew out here. Duval Nation, please welcome the show calling in today from his office in South Pasadena, California, legendary sports photographer and an all around great guest, Andrew D. Bernstein. (laughs) Andrew, hello. Welcome to the Duval Show. How is the weather out by you today?
2: Derek, the weather is actually really hot. <laughs> um, it's got to be in the high 90s today for the uh, first week of October, which is bizarre.
1: So with the pandemic winding down, how was it for you to work in the COVID-19 world?
2: Well, I, you know, I'm sure you've heard this word word before. It was extremely challenging. Put it to you this way, my friend. March 10th, 2020, my my photography company was going full blast, meaning we had events going on in both our arenas. At that time, it was called Staples Center and across the street, Microsoft Theater. All three teams that I covered were playing the Lakers, Clippers, and Kings. We were all looking down the pike towards playoffs, which were coming up in April. You know, other work was happening, and we were really busy. That was on March 10th, March 11th. 100% of my work went away. Not 70%, not 90%, 100% of my work. So it was really, really difficult for us um, as a group. Um, I had uh, two full-time employees at that time. We kind of limped through on some PPP money. And I was very fortunate, honestly, that the NBA uh, instituted the bubble down in Florida, and they asked me to come cover. I was there for 53 days towards the end of the bubble, and that saved saved my work life for the year, quite honestly, because... Otherwise, you know, would not have done anything until probably very, very little come. I think we started working again a little bit in November, but that was about it. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah, but I have to interject. But as challenging as it was, Derek, it was actually an opportunity for me on my other side of the other business that I have, which is my Legends of Sport platform, specifically the podcast, because, you know, we were all stuck in our homes and offices. Um, I was able to do podcast interviews. I was doing one or two, maybe sometimes three a week on Zoom. First time we were able to do Zoom interviews or do, uh, you know, incorporate video into our podcast releases as well as audio. And then when I went to the bubble, I was in a little tiny, like 10 by 12 hotel room in Disney World. And I was doing podcasts out of my hotel room once a week. It was a little bit of a, a blessing in disguise because it really sort of elevated our podcast to an audience that might not have listened to us before. (laughs) And those, those people, you know, kept coming back. So, and again, having the availability of doing video was great. That's amazing. What
1: a, what, what a challenging time for you. Mm -hmm. Every journey has a beginning. Where were you born? And what was it like to grow up there?
2: Well, my friend, I was born in Brooklyn, New York. I was born In 1958, the same year that the Dodgers moved to out of Brooklyn to L.A. So it was it was a dark period in my family's history (laughs) (laughs) as they were were all Brooklyn Dodger fans. But uh, I came along and uh, I grew up an avid sports fan. You know, I played a lot of sports as a kid, a lot of street hockey, football, a lot of basketball in the schoolyard. I took up photography when I was 14 years old. My dad bought me a camera. And we made a trip to the Western United States. I had never been west of New Jersey at that point. And I got to really fall in love with photography. And, you know, to make a very long journey short, I had been able to marry my two real passions in life, sports and photography, and became a sports photographer. So it all kind of all came together.
1: Talk about that first camera.
2: Well, it was the old Canon TL camera. I remember it like, it was yesterday. Uh, old um, manual camera was sort of their—I uh, don't know their their beginners camera that they made. Of course, it was film, all manual. My dad was a was a clinical psychologist, but he thought he was he was an amateur. Or anything that he tried, you know, he thought he was an amateur woodworker. He thought he was an amateur hockey player. He also thought he was an amateur photographer, and so he he sort of took it upon himself on this trip to. All the wonderful uh, national parks to kind of teach me the ropes, which I, I took up the technical stuff really quickly. You know, you you used a certain kind of film if it was daytime, a different film if it was nighttime. He taught me how to use the settings. I, I, you know, that was maybe a one hour of lesson right there, and that camera really became sort of um, an appendage uh, for a while. I mean, the big joke in high school quite honestly, was who who would come in the room first, Andy or his camera, because the camera was literally attached to me. I was shooting everything. I went to a very big high school in Brooklyn. We had, you know, all the sports teams and clubs and theater shows and all that stuff. And and I became kind of the official photographer for all that stuff, the yearbook and of course photo editor of that in, in our newspaper. And just loved it. Loved being able to express myself through through this device, you know, to, to, especially when I saw these beautiful vistas on our trip and, you know, I would see, you know, the Grand Tetons and be able to have that that image in my mind and then translate that through a camera onto film. It was a really, it was a cathartic experience. And then coming back after that trip and learning how to do darkroom work, dark darkroom techniques and seeing the magic, literally the magic show of of being under a yellow light and have a blank piece of paper in the in a solution, and then all of a sudden the, the photograph that I had envisioned in my head that, that I saw is coming out onto this piece of paper. Uh, it's hard to describe um, how dramatic that was, but almost every time I I developed film or, or processed prints, I, I had that that same that same sort of epiphany experience. It's just an amazing experience. It's amazing.
1: Favorite memories from your time at University of Massachusetts Amherst?
2: Oh, wow! Some great memories there, my friend. I I I went to UMass, um, uh, kind of by default. Quite frankly, I wanted to go to Syracuse University. It was between Syracuse and UMass, and uh, I remember sitting at the kitchen table, my dad looking at both the tuitions, you know, and. Hmm. Saying, okay, you're not going here. You're going there. <laughs> you <know? laughs> and my heart was broken because Syracuse had just opened the uh, SI Newhouse School of of um, Communications, and you know it, it's become the greatest place to be. But anyway, I ended up going to UMass. It was closer to home. I I sort of rationalized all that and had a great experience. I had to learn very quickly that in order to have friends at UMass, you had to become a fan of some Boston team. Whether it's the Red Sox or the Celtics or God forbid the Bruins, because I was a diehard Ranger fan. <laughs> so I, I became a Red Sox fan, which was was not blasphemous to my family because we we did not have an American League team. The word Yankee would never enter our house. <laughs> and that's a true story. So I was, you know, a diehard Mets fan, but I didn't have an American League team. So I became a Red Sox fan, still a Red Sox fan. I was not really interested at all in basketball. So the Celtics, who were terrible at that time this is 1975, you know, they were irrelevant, um, kind of became a, a Patriots fan, but not really became a bigger Patriots fan during the Brady era. But it was really the Red Sox and, and going to Fenway Park and bonding with my friends. And it's a whole d- different group of kids. You know, I I always say that, you know, I, I never, I didn't want to go to college at like a SUNY school in New York, in New York State with basically the same kids I grew up with, you know, I wanted a different experience, but I was three and a half hours from home. That was closer than going to Albany or Buffalo or Binghamton or some, you know, state university of New York school. And it was a completely different um, group of kids, different kind of cultural um, uh, immersion, you know, going to Boston was so much different than going to New York. It was just a different vibe, different type of, of I just, I loved it. And I had an uncle who I was very, very close to who lived in the Boston area, was a longtime professor at Brandeis. So I got to see him very often his and his family, my family. Um, so it was a wonderful experience. It was, I spent two and a half years at UMass until I decided I, I needed to up my game in photography. I need, If I was going to become a photographer of any kind, I wasn't learning in a classroom at UMass, I was learning by working for the newspaper or doing um, different shoots for the fine arts department or the Greek system or whatever. But I knew there was a ceiling to that, that I, I needed to get so called book smart in photography. So I trans, it was a very difficult decision, honestly, but I transferred to a school in Pasadena, California called Art Center College of Design in the middle of my junior year at UMass and started from the beginning. Art Center at that time, and still is known as the medical school of art schools. It's, it's a grueling eight trimester, um, challenging beyond belief, sleep deprived experience. But um, not only did I get great classroom training and history photography, science of photography, spent countless hours all-nighters in the dark room, but I was introduced to some Sports Illustrated photographers by one of my teachers, and that just opened the door for me um, career-wise because uh, I learned everything about the the profession that I wanted to get into literally by being on the job working for those guys.
1: Hmm. What has intrigued you the most about sports photography over other disciplines
2: well, sports photography, of course, is is photojournalism. So it's very akin to news, feature, any photography that, that is is a moment of time captured that you can't redo. You can't, can I ask Kobe Bryant to just dunk that again because I missed it, you know? Or Kirk Gibson, hey, hit that uh, World Series home run again because uh, I had the wrong lens on. <laughs> you know, I'm being facetious, but it's true. I love the challenge um, of it being, a moment in time that would only happen once. Being prepared for that, uh, before the assignment, during the assignment, learning the techniques, watching photographers, colleagues of mine, and photographers that I that I admired, see how they they conducted themselves, how they worked with athletes, how they worked with agents, PR directors, um, how they interacted with with their assistants. All of that I learned on the job, and it was invaluable.
1: Do you remember the very first, you know, professional sporting event you covered as an official photographer?
2: Yeah. Well, I I I do remember the very first basketball. You know, I'm known as a basketball photographer primarily, right? The very first basketball picture I took was in 1975. That that not that I took, but that was published, it was in 1975, University of Massachusetts in the Curry Hicks cage, which is an old dumpy gym that we used to play in, had no heat. <laughs> and it was a picture of, of our starting point guards, a simple layup, black and white. This guy, Alex Eldridge, going to the hoop. And that got published the next day in the in our Daily Collegian newspaper with my byline on it. And it was probably one of the greatest moments of my life up until that point, because I knew everybody else on campus was seeing my name under that picture. As a paid gig, you know, I think my first paid gig as a sports photographer probably was working for the Los Angeles Aztecs, a long defunct soccer team, professional soccer team. They used to play in the Rose Bowl. This is the North American Soccer League that that Pele played for the Cosmos for, right? And I don't know why they hired me, quite honestly. I think I worked for $50 a game or something. I built a darkroom in the garage of this little apartment, the guest house I was living in. And I would shoot the game at the Rose Bowl and race back to my place in Pasadena, develop the film all night, make prints and have prints on my boss's desk by nine o'clock in the morning, you know, and it was wonderful. It was a great, great way to get my feet wet in the business, learn how to be a team photographer, which is, which is very different than being an assignment photographer, somebody who works for a news organization or a magazine, back in the day, being a team photographer, you know, it's very centric, obviously, to the team you're working for. There are needs that have to be fulfilled during a game. I learned how to do that. I, I would get a, a list from the PR director who I worked for. You know, these are the players we're going to key on this week. You know, there's no internet or anything, but they put out a program for the next game, so you know, I'd have to produce photos. In that game for, for that, work with their very tiny little marketing department or sponsorship people, you know, to get whatever signage or uh, check presentation, whatever ha- is happening, you know. So I learned on the job at that point because I had never worked really for any team photographer. The o- only photographers I had worked for were assignment photographers. And that's a different different animal. But uh, But the photography techniques are the same. And the preparation is pretty much the same and the type of gear you need and film you have to bring and and post-production and all that stuff.
1: Hmm. Now, you've been in the business of, you know, sports photography for four decades, which is a hell of a career.
2: Hmm. How do
1: you build trust with, you know, athletes, coaches, organizations during that career?
2: It's all about integrity, my friend. It's all about being honest, being an honest business person producing what you promise, never giving anyone a reason to doubt your professional or personal integrity, never being in a place where you're told you can't be. Now that doesn't mean I didn't push the envelope, which I did many, many times, but I always had a reason to do it. And if I was told that I've been gone, I went too far or whatever, I, I would back off. And most importantly, the biggest lesson I learned is that it's not ever about me. It's never about me. It's about the subject, the team, the coach, the athlete, whoever, whatever's in front of my lens. That's what it's about. You know, in my case, you know, went all the way up to the league level. So I learned how to be a fly on the wall. I learned how to not be a distraction and to uh, conduct myself honestly in business. You know, I have clients now have been with me over 40 years and it doesn't happen by accident. There's a lot of young, really talented photographers out there, especially now, and it doesn't take a lot to become a professional sports photographer. You know, you essentially go out and spend a lot of money, you buy a camera like I have and you put it on auto and all of a sudden you're a sports photographer. Is that really how it works? But Unfortunately a lot of people who are starting out think that's how it works it's all about the relationships and 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 being an honest person it really is and being your genuine person a genuine person not being fake not you know not talking behind people's back all that stuff right of all the
1: photos you take in sports who are or were some of your favorite
2: athletes to shoot? Oh, well, you know, I've shot so many athletes, but I have to tell you that the ones that I became closest to um, as human beings um, somehow produced the, the best photos. I don't know how that is. But, you know, starting with Magic Johnson, of course, my rookie year, my first year was Magic's second year in the NBA. And we essentially grew up together in the NBA. And I learned work ethic from magic for my dad as well but really saw how this guy brought the lunch pail every every single day to work and he and i bonded over work ethic he loved to look at my pictures i i made some great took some great pictures of him back in the showtime era that have withstood the, the test of time and become i guess iconic in a way because of, of the history so starting with magic probably going to Shaq and, and then of course to Kobe. Um, Kobe has to be the 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 you know the top of the pyramid, the number one subject in front of my lens for my entire career. I was with him literally from day one. I took his first picture as a Laker and his last picture as a Laker 20 years later and maybe a million photos in between. Hmm. And I was there for every single significant moment in his career documenting it.
1: Well, you took a photograph. I was going through your um, Instagram page in the preparation for this interview and just by some pure coincidence you took one of my favorite photographs of michael jordan
2: oh which one And
1: it was the one of michael jordan hunched over guarding magic johnson right him with his hands on his shorts magic's yeah. in the foreground with the basketball and he's looking and he's just got that look staring yeah. at Ma- he's staring at magic yeah and that is okay. i i didn't know you took that photograph yeah. And I remember when I was a kid growing up watch watching right. the, the finals, that was my favorite photograph of Michael Jordan. And oh, I didn't that's know, so, I, so I didn't,
2: great to hear that. Thank I didn't you.
1: know that you took it. And I was like, oh my God. And that was I, I was glad that we had the chance to tell you that that was such an incredible photograph. That was thank you. Thank yeah, you. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So yeah, I I have captioned that or, or named that photo Death Stare.
1: That's <laughs> that's exactly what it is. I mean,
2: literally <laughs> giving him the death stare, you know, and And to be able to capture it, I just got, you know, luck plays into it, too, Derek. You know, I just got kind of lucky it lined up that way. He's almost looking at me, you know, but he's looking right at magic. And yeah, I I thank you for that. No one's ever told me that was their favorite photo. They always talk about the Jordan one holding the trophy or, you know, other Jordan photos or Kobe or whatever. But um, yeah, that, that warms my heart. Thank you.
1: You're welcome. Speaking of, you covered the Dream Team in 1992. Mm. Uh, What are some of your favorite memories of shooting that team?
2: Well, just the overall experience of being embedded with that team for um, seven weeks from day one of training camp in San Diego, through the Tournament of the Americas in Portland, then we went to Monaco for training camp and, of course, Barcelona for the Olympics. And just, just, just being a fly on the wall, my friend. I mean, imagine being on the bus with all these guys or being in the locker room or going out to the golf course with Jordan and and Chuck Daly and being there to witness them demolish the rest of the world <laughs> on the court, you know, and, and of course the gold medal ceremony and, and what we did post, post ceremony back at the hotel with portraits with the gold medal. I mean, it was just such, such an incredible, literally once in a lifetime experience that, you know, if this, if this came later in my career, I probably would have retired after it because I don't think could ever, and it, nothing has ever matched up to that overall experience of that seven weeks of being embedded with them.
1: Hmm.
2: How did you meet Kobe Bryant? So I met Kobe on Media Day 1996. Um it was around now, at the beginning of, of training camp. The first day of training camp is what the NBA calls Media Day, where Everyone from the local media gets to interview, photograph, video, whatever. The players from the team is like a two hour period where you imagine all these different stations around the gym and the players go from one station to the other. So they might do an interview with you on the radio. They might do a video thing. They might do photos with me, something of the LA Times, NBA Entertainment, whatever. And It's a rather routine thing for the players. It's a very high-stress environment for for me and because we have to produce a lot of photography in a very short amount of time. I I have two sets set up, and um, one of it's just for the regular headshot. so a blue background, and the other is a white background where we do what we call mock action, the players in uniform, and we kind of fake stuff. And this is for you know, back in the day when trading cards would have to come out before the season started and there, there'd be rookies or there'd be traded players or the team would have changed uniform styles. So the trading cards primarily would, and the NBA publications and other publications would rely on what we shoot at media day to be like the very first photos of usually these, you know, newer guys. And always my style when, a new guy was on my set, you know, comes onto the blue background, headshot. First thing, if I had never met him before, I don't care if he's a veteran or a traded player or a rookie, I would always go in and introduce myself, you know, be respectful. So I, you know, had my camera, went up to him, I, I went to Kobe, I said, hey, Kobe, I'm, I'm Andy Bernstein, I'm your team photographer, and I shook his hand, and he looked me dead in the eye, and he uh, he said, well, I know who you are, man. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm 20 years older than him, and I remember being 18, being a little bit smart ass, you know, and he's 18, and I am thinking it my head. That's a real smart ass comment because and I said to him I said I said that to myself but I said to him I said, well I don't know how that's possible because we never met before he goes, yeah, I know we've never met before, but I had all your posters hanging in my room <laughs> So I'm thinking in the moment Derek, that first of all no one on the planet reads photo credits on a poster other than photographers because a we want to see our own name on the poster but B, We want to see who shot the poster that we wish we would have shot, right? Right. Um, Just like credits in a magazine. So I'm thinking, wow, this kid like literally studied the photo credit, which is in this minuscule type, you know, type font (laughs) size at the bottom of the poster. And that he had like the wherewithal to to say that to me. It it was just like ultimate, uh, I, I guess, gesture of respect. But just showed how how locked in this kid was. Right. And I in that moment, honestly, my friend, I, I saw something in him that I I remembered in myself at 18, just being hungry, wanting to make a mark for myself and my craft. You know, he's a basketball player. I'm a photographer. I wanted to be like those big guys, you know, that I saw getting published in Sports Illustrated. You know, he's He's a he's right out of high school kid, you know, trying to go up against men. Um, I'm sure he felt the same way. And it wasn't until years later when he and I sat down to do our book together that we really had this conversation. Like, how, why is it that we bonded so early? Like we had never – guys are usually talk about that stuff anyway. But why did that actually happen? Because we needed to sort of have a, a, a starting point for when we started our book like, how did our relationship start? And we went back to, he and I both remembered that moment like it was yesterday.
1: Hmm. You speaking of the book, you know, how did the collaboration between you two turn into that book, The Mama Mentality, How I Play?
2: Well, you know, Kobe retired in 2016, and we all knew he was going to retire. He announced it in November of that season, 2015. And, you know, as as we're getting closer to the retirement time, I remember standing in front of my filing cabinet and, and thinking, you know, there's like thousands of photos in here that no one's ever seen. And then and of course the NBA has hundreds of thousands of photos of mine that no one's ever seen. And yes, a lot of my Kobe imagery has been published over the years, but there's just this mountain of content. And, and I went to him and I, I, I made a presentation about a, a type of book that I thought, would honor his career through my lens and through my experiences with him. And he was very respectful of, of my presentation. But at the end of the presentation, he he flat out said, you know what, Andy, I got good news for you and I got bad news. He says, thank you for bringing this presentation. But the good news is we're going to do a book together. And I said, "That that's great. And he said, the bad news is we're not doing this book. The one you brought to me today, we're not doing that book. <laughs> we're doing the book I want to do. <laughs> okay. What do you want to do, Mr. Bryant, sir? And uh, it it just started flowing out of him that he had never really fully let the world know what the Mamba mentality really meant to him, what his definition of of taking on the black Mamba um persona. And what the Mamba mentality really broke down to be. He had given snippets of it and he had answered questions in in ways that were very, almost vague, (laughs) you know, all of a sudden he's like this, he changes his number. He never said why he's, he's took on this like superhero killer, you know, venomous snake persona. He's got this like mindset called the Mamba mentality, but he never really like, Put it all into one concise package. And that's what he wanted the book to be. So he said, Look, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell my story and you're gonna illustrate it with your photos. <laughs> Let's get to work. <laughs> I mean, really, that's how it went. Yeah, he, he had like, you know, which was him to a T and everything. He knew exactly what he wanted the book to look like. The book is divided into two parts: process, which is sort of the mental and physical preparation. And craft, which is everything basketball related, and how those two work together, how you have to build on one and build on the other so that each one could, you know, prosper and, and make you a better athlete, better you know, more successful. And my job was to illustrate through my photos, my gigantic archive of photos, what he was what, what he wanted to say. It was very challenging mostly because half of his career took place before the digital era. Hmm. Half of his career, first half was on film. So the NBA has a terrific archive, but he would literally remember specific moments in specific games that I would have to then rely on editors back at NBA photos who were great. You gotta find this picture. You gotta find him faking Bruce Bowen In the third quarter of game three of the 2001 Western Conference finals, because he talks about it in the book, (laughs) you know, and I got to say, we probably found 95% of, of what he needed us to find, which shocked me, quite honestly, I didn't think it was possible, but we did. He was gracious enough to allow me to put some, what he called pretty pictures in the book that didn't really relate to the Mamba mentality, but photos that were really, really, really important to me as being sort of the documentarian of his career photographically. So we both, you know, agreed on Phil Jackson writing the forward and, and Pal Gasol writing the introduction. And it was just, um, it was an absolute joy not didn't not have its you know crazy moments, of course, like any project, but it was a joy working with him and collaborating with him because we were really on the same page. It was it was great. That's amazing. What a great story.
1: Okay, Deval Nation. We are gonna go ahead and take a small break right here, but we will be right back with the conclusion of this interview with Andrew D. Bernstein. Miss just you take this time to refresh that drink and take some super long deep breaths. You know that's right. Cluzo style.
2: Out with the bad air, in with the good. Out with the bad air, in with
1: the good. Please give your attention to a few friends on my show, and we will be right back.
0: What if I told you about a group of elite college athletes who compete in 35 different sports at one of the toughest institutions in the nation? For them, it's not about name, image, and licensing, or any other kind of major endorsement deal. Because at the end of the day, their ultimate goal is to serve their country. This is Carl Darden. I'm the host of Navy Sports Central, and I'm talking about the athlete who attend the United States Naval Academy. These young men and women represent the best our country has to offer. They compete at a high level on both the national and world stage and their stories have mostly gone untold. I'm here to change all of that. So please join me, Carl Darden on Navy sports central, wherever you get your podcast to learn more about these incredible athletes and our nation's future leaders.
3: Hello Duvall nation, Derek DeVall here. Mental health is not only a top priority in my life, but it should be in yours too. As a combat military veteran, I have seen what untreated mental health looks like, which is why I've been using a therapist for well over a decade. Seeing a trusted therapist has helped me reconcile life events and other important things I've been witness to since returning home from the service and has changed my life for the better in many ways. Which is why going forward I am pleased to announce that BetterHelp will be sponsoring the Derek DeBall show. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Derek Show. That's BetterHelp.com slash Derek DeVall Show. We're me in the game. This is Chad from The Shame. We're listening to The Derek Duval Show. You can find our stuff at theshameshop.com or listen to it on almost all our streaming services. We'll see you down the pub. Cheers. This is Benjamin Sledge, author of Where Cowards Go to Die. In my award-winning memoir, you'll discover the raw humanity, intricate complexity, and brutal barbarity of those who served in the Iraq and Afghan wars, and the psychological toll it took on modern veterans. You can purchase Where Cowards Go to Die on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or anywhere major books are sold. Look for me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Benjamin C. Sledge.
0: Hey, it's Michelle Fabre, and you're listening to The Derek Duvall Show. You can hear my brand new single, I'm All That I Need, on all streaming platforms right now.
1: Teachers, do you ever have these feelings or have been told these things?
0: Do you want Kleenex for your classroom? Maybe you should think about buying your own, with your own money. You get the summer off, you can have a second job. Do you really need a pay raise? Oh, do you need to use the restroom? Maybe you can do that in the three minutes while students are changing classes. Boy, sure hope your room doesn't descend into Lord of the Flies in that time. Oh, things are going pretty good for one. Surprise! Budget Cuts. Well, you're in luck
3: because we've got a book just for you.
0: Hi, everyone. It's Katie Kinder, educator, speaker, and author of Untold Teaching Truths. I invite you to purchase my book and join this journey as we talk about the wild world of public education. Part memoir, part strategy. It is available on BookBaby, Amazon, or wherever books are sold. Teach on, warriors. We've got this.
2: Hi, this is Glenn,
0: And this is Sonia from Echavelli.
2: And you
3: are listening to The Derek Duvalcher. Show. Here's a song called Faces in the Mirror from our album Anarchy and Alchemy.
1: You can find perfectly flawed on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, or wherever books are sold. Welcome back to episode 195 of the Derek DeVall Show. Let's get right back to it with the conclusion of our interview with sports photographer and the co-founder of Legends of Sport, Andrew D. Bernstein. Talk to me about transitioning, you know, your business model into a sports media platform called Legends of Sports.
2: Well, that's a great question, Derek. You know, as I my career was going on and players were aging out of the league and I would see these iconic players in all sports, but mostly basketball, but in all the sports, these like legendary, many times Hall of Famers being, you know, you'd read, read horror stories about how they're broke or how they have to sell their memorabilia or their championship rings just to pay the bills or pay their alimony payments or even worse you know they're in rehab or all kinds of terrible things that were happening to these legendary athletes who we all all grew up adoring um once the spotlight was off you know many times they floundered and myself a couple of very very close friends of mine who became my partners in legends of sport who were also in the sports business but in different different sides of sports um we just decided we have to figure out a way to honor these athletes mostly, but it wasn't just athletes. There were teams too. Like, for example, I told you earlier, I grew up a 69 Mets fan, you know, nobody, I don't think anybody could tell unless you were a diehard Mets fan today could say who was on that team besides like maybe Tom Seaver and uh maybe Jerry Grody or somebody like that. But, you know, those those guys were just forgotten about and there are venues that have come and gone. You know, when, like I said, I, you know, when I was born the Dodgers moved out of Brooklyn, they tore down Ebbets field. You know, I grew up hearing about Ebbets field. I didn't know anything about Ebbets field. Um, I don't know the history of Wimbledon. I don't know the history of, uh, of Churchill Downs or the Indianapolis Motor Speedway or, or anything like that. There are fan bases that are absolutely legendary, whether it's, you know, the Duke basketball student body or Michigan football or the, the crazy soccer fans for Liverpool or, you know, name any sport. Right. Um, and we, we just felt there was a there was a real void in the sports content landscape. You know, a lot of people, a lot of platforms talk about last night's score, who scored the most points is endless talk about. You know, goats and who's greater? You know, who's greater, Kareem or LeBron or Kobe or, or Jordan? There's enough of that talk out there, right? We wanted to honor the legacy of of athletes, moments, teams, venues, and personalities in sports. We talk about personalities. We talk about Sylvester Stallone and Rocky. You know, we talk about the natural um, slap shot. You know, great movies that are sports oriented um so that's what we've been building since it's been about eight eight years or so we've been building legends of sport three of us and we brought on a fourth partner we all have very busy lives you know families active careers so it's been a little bit on the side i've been able to be the only one of the four of us to kind of step out i have about a foot and a half out of my Basketball, NBA, photography, life, and devote more time to legends of sport, which gave me the um, the bandwidth in, to be doing a, a weekly podcast. Which, as you know, takes up a lot of time. Mm-hmm. I mean, as you know, you, if you're fortunate to have a producer, they help um, a researcher, but you know, you a lot of you, the host, and to do an interview like this, like we're doing. I mean, I'm preaching to the choir, but you know, there's a lot of research, all that stuff. Plus, the logistics of booking the person and everything that comes after with the post production and the social media and all that. So, it's been a wonderful learning process. And I've literally enjoyed every single interview that we've done. We've done 165 interviews, I think. And we've re released a bunch of podcasts as classics, we call them. So, we just released our 200th podcast a couple of months ago going into season seven. Love doing it. We're starting to now, you know, as we're well out of COVID and and, and teams and, and uh, entities are doing events again, um, we're starting to plan Legends-based events. We've done a couple already. And that's sort of our next big push. So stay tuned on that.
1: Whenever I get a podcaster on my show, one of the questions I love asking is, you know, what are the, some of the challenges that you have faced when you've been doing your podcasting?
2: Oh, I probably could ask you that same question. <laughs> the biggest challenge is, well, from our standpoint, quite honestly, the biggest challenge is getting people to, to a respond, and b commit, and c show up. <laughs> <laughs> and and you know, it, yeah, it's funny, but it's it, it's it's an ongoing process. You know, yes. we're talking about most of the guests we've had on the podcast i i i either have a direct relationship with so i can text michael cooper or byron scott or magic secretary or assistant or pat riley or whatever you know whoever it is but you know you got to work in their schedule got to be very um willing to to pivot you know if they change the time or date or whatever uh we usually like to two or three podcasts in the can so to speak and so that you know if we if the guest cancels on us this week we'll have somebody to put out next week um that's been the challenge i, I will not say that that the interview is the easiest part quite honestly the the research is fun um the the deep dive into somebody somebody's history is a lot of fun for me um I love finding out where people came from. You, you asked me this earlier, you know, where did you start? Who influenced you? What, what was the pivotal moment? I find out stuff from every single person that I didn't know before, or I, I I didn't, you know, couldn't get from any kind of research. I'll give you an example. Like Kirk Gibson, for example, told this great story about how he was a two sport athlete at Michigan state. And he was a better football player than he was a baseball player. and, and in going into the senior year, his uh his football coach, because he, he had you know NFL written all over him, right? This his football coach calls him and he says, You know what, Kirk, I think as great a football player as you are, you're gonna have a better and longer career as a baseball player. <laughs> uh and you know, his fate his was sealed at that point. I mean, who, who knows a story like that, you know? So, you know, Jerry West told these amazing, wonderful, deep stories about his childhood, which, of course, were in his book. But I never heard Jerry be that honest with anybody about, you know, where he came from and, you know, his very, very difficult upbringing. I mean, he was very open in his book, but I, I really had never heard an interview about it. So, you know, I know Jerry well enough. I felt comfortable asking him. Um, I asked Kobe the same question that you asked me about the mama mentality, even though I knew the answer, but when I interviewed Kobe, when our book came out, you know, I want to know from him, you know, why was it important for you to do this book? Um, why did you and I do it together? You know, so it's always a great backfinding mission, but it's always gratifying to actually do the interview. I always feel so elated, like after the interview, I just immediately like call my producer and I'm, I'm just, you know, glowing about it. I just love it. That's amazing.
1: Yeah. De said, the most important thing in life is not the triumph, but the struggle. You get a chance to talk to your youngest self. What would you say to him?
2: Oh man. Um, you know, the first thing I would say, Derek is um, don't stop. I mean, don't just keep pushing. Not that I ever was, was the type to give up or, or, you know, get to a moment of despair and say, this isn't going to work out. But, you know, as a young photographer trying to make in this business and literally like sitting there looking at the phone, which was a landline, like willing it to ring, you know, we didn't have, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have email. We didn't have, you know, we didn't have beepers in those days. I don't think to just not give up. You know, I had, I had a dream, Peter Goober, Said it perfectly in his book and he said it on my podcast, you know, that dreams plus goals equals destiny. And even though I didn't know it then and I wasn't able to verbalize it, I I did have a dream. I had a dream to become a successful sports photographer. That started very early, you know, when I got that first camera. I didn't know it was going to be sports, but I knew I loved photography and I knew there had to be a way to earn a living. I wasn't sure how to get there. But that dream, you know, became a goal once I decided to move to California. That was the pivotal moment in my journey where I'm like, I'm having a blast at UMass. I made a lot of friends. My girlfriend was there. I was, you know, I was giving up a lot. I was doing a lot of photography. I was actually making some money doing photography. I gave all that up to come to California to really start at the bottom. Um, And that became the goal. I mean, the goal became, okay, now you're putting your money where your mouth is. Um, The goal is to become, for this to become a career. And now look, you know, 40 whatever years, you know, looking back, was it my destiny? I think so. I think it was. I mean, I don't really think in a spiritual sort of religious way as destiny. I see it as, as just my path. You know, I, I said, I, took a dream, made it a goal, and went out and got it.
1: Powerful. So what's next for Andrew?
2: Well, um, that's a great question. Um, I'm really happy to to confirm on this podcast something that, that has been brewing for a while. And uh, I'm really happy to tell you, actually, my friend, really one of the first people hearing this, That um, we at Legends of Sport are partnered with Vanessa Bryant, Kobe's widow, to do a book of the 600 or so murals that are out there honoring the legacy of Kobe and Gigi Bryant. We're going to partner with Vanessa on that. She's going to choose a select number of murals that we are then going to, myself and other photographers are going to go photograph. We're going to talk to the muralists. We're going to make a beautiful coffee table book out of it and uh can't say exactly when that's going to happen that but it'll be you know we're literally starting the process as we speak but um this is a, a wonderful project that's been in the works for a while and uh she um it's really the first project that that she is putting her personal stamp on since the tragedy um which I, i'm honored i mean me personally but speaking for my partners and, and all of us at Legends of Sport, we're just honored that she picked us to do this project with. That's so amazing. that's that's really next. What's also next is next week I start my 40, 43rd, 43rd NBA season. So that kind of blows my mind. Um, I'm doing much much fewer games than I used to, but still have, like I said, half a foot on the court. Um And I'm looking forward to it. Hockey season starts too. And this is now my, I believe this is like my 44th season shooting LA Kings hockey. Been their team photographer on and off for about 30 of those years. Um, I'm still director of photography for AEG which manages crypto.com arena and the theater called Peacock Theater. So my group is responsible for anything that happens on the entertainment side on both those venues. So we're going to be busy. We're going to be super busy. I mean, you know, going back to your very first question three years ago, um, there was so much doubt and and fear, quite honestly, like, were sports ever going to come back? I mean, will there ever, ever be live events again? Um, are we ever going to get through COVID? I mean, I don't think, you know, October of 2020, I was still in the bubble. Um, the NBA season ended in October, as you remember, it's like October fifteenth or something was the NBA the NBA Finals. The Dodgers actually won the World Series before the Lakers won the NBA championship <laughs> that year, which was crazy. Mm. Um, so thank God we all got through it, and uh, things are kind of back to normal, but a little bit different, but different in a in a good way, I think. And you know, I'm I'm thankful that that legends of sport actually prospered a little bit prospered, but grew, um, during the, um, pandemic and post pandemic, uh, we built on what we were doing, um, in the depths of COVID. So a lot to be thankful for.
1: As we enter the final phase of the interview, I always like to ask one fun question. What do you like to do for fun? How do you like to
2: relax? Well, I, I just took up tennis again. Tennis has been in my family for a long time. And I love tennis. My wife loves tennis. And so we're able to play tennis once in a while together. But I I took up tennis. Now I have a weekly tennis lesson. Um, I take as good a care of myself as I can. Uh, I have a trainer I see twice a week and I I do yoga once, sometimes twice a week. So, you know, taking care of my body to me as I'm getting older is essential to just having the energy to do what I want to do. And we uh, we have a little mountain cabin that we like to escape to. You know, we have we have a 15 year old who's a sophomore in high school and she she's our last kid in the house um, of four of them. So we're enjoying whatever time we have left with her, you know, under our roof, which is super fun. She's not driving yet. So I still get a lot of joy out of driving her to school and picking her up in the afternoon. So, you know, it's 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 a full life, my friend, of of. Of Now being creatively challenged, especially with this book project, which is going to be super fun, going back and doing what my first real passion was, my my sports photography, and still maintaining the bandwidth and the creative energy to keep pushing on to the next thing, which really is what fuels me. I'm not the kind of guy, you know, I I don't come from a family of, you know, you reach a certain age and then you just go fishing, mm-hmm. you know. That's, that's, that's not it. That's not in our Brooklyn DNA. Uh, So, you know, they'll have to drag me off the court one day probably, but that's okay. What
1: would be the best way for my listeners to follow your adventures online?
2: Well, you know, I'll plug first legends of sport, which anybody can find us on Instagram at legends of sport. Our YouTube channel is called legends of sport and the podcast. You can get it. Our home base is iHeart, but you can get it on Apple or Spotify or any podcast platform just simply called Legends of Sport, which I host. My photography is uh, primarily on Instagram, at ADB Photo Inc. And we post continuously during the NBA season. Like I'll, if I had a game tonight, I would put out a bunch of photos for, you know, fans to see what I shot tonight. Um, We've platform a lot between my platform and Legends of Sport and we'll be, as we start the production of the book and out there doing shoots, we'll be posting periodically uh, on the progress of the book. Okay. So people should look forward to that. The podcast right now at this very moment is on hiatus as we're starting the book project. And I have to be mindful of you know my bandwidth. Um, but we'll start doing the podcast again pretty soon. Um, we have a couple of events we're planning that we'll probably kick off season seven with. So people just stay tuned to our social media for that.
1: Amazing. I am my interviews with my favorite question. And the question is this, if the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, what would be the one thing you would like to say to the people of earth?
2: <laughs> you know, the one thing I'd like to say, Derek, is is don't forget about those athletes that they gave us so much joy when we were younger because that, that's, that's really the mission of Legends of Sport. Is, is that's how Legends of Sport was born. And it's so near and dear to my heart. I mean, you can tell how passionate I am about keeping or moving the spotlight back just a little bit, giving these athletes a, a way to monetize a little bit from their legacy or just to stay relevant in some way, shape or form. Because sports is, is a legacy, in, mostly in families or in friend groups. Um, I'm still, I still go to Fenway Park every year with my college buddies. We've been doing it for 45 years. Every year I go religiously to Fenway Park because that's what we've been doing. And, you know, just honor that legacy and keep keep moving it forward because the next generation needs to know what came before them so they can pass that on to their next generation.
1: Andrew, what can I say, but, Congratulations on one hell of a career. You have built a legacy that will stand the test of time. And I applaud you, sir. Thanks, yeah. for, thanks for coming on the show today and speaking with me.
2: Uh, Derek, it was really a pleasure, man. And a uh, great conversation, obviously great questions. You're super well-prepared and uh, I look forward to just hearing this when it comes out. So thank you.
1: Welcome. And just like that, DeVal Nation, we come to the end of episode 195. <clears throat> I want to thank Andrew for taking the time out of his incredibly busy schedule to come on the show and speak with me. I am so glad we could make that happen. What a fantastic guest. And I really do hope our paths cross again down the road, maybe at an Oklahoma City Thunder game. Who knows? Okay, tune in again next time as we showcase another extraordinary person. I have a really good one coming up in a few days, so be sure to keep checking your favorite podcast streaming channel for the episode to drop. Also, I think it's fair to ask you, the listener, have you enjoyed this episode? I truly hope you have, so please go and hit that subscribe button to keep up to date for when new episodes drop. Also, if you're feeling generous, drop us a review. We love reading what our listeners have to say about us, good or bad. We are still enjoying our partnership with the amazing Tea Public. The Derek Duvall Show has a great little store on there. And we have everything without a logo on it, including magnets, stickers, and mugs, Plus, we have some really fun t-shirts on there that Mrs. Duvall and I added ourselves. So please go to our website, directduvallshow.com. Go to the banner of the left Merch. Click that, and you'll be taken to our store on Public. And once again, I want to thank them for being such great partners with the show. On behalf of myself and the entire team here at the Derek Duvall Show, I want to say to each and every one of you listening, the world is getting a bit crazy lately. And so everyone, please go out of your way to check on your loved ones and friends. Ask them how they are doing with everything going on in the world. Get them to turn off the news if it's too distressing. We must all take good care of each other now more than ever. Nos da, God bless, and see you next time. Planet Earth.
0: This has been a recording of The Derek Duval Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvalShow.com for links to merchandise and to explore past episodes. Please find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Derek Duval Show.